makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Ambetu wastelo, chante waste napechu zapiello, le unkipiki he wastelo. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. It's a good day for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio. I'm Teokazin Ghost Horse, sending you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. Our studio engineer, ally guide is the Malcolm Byrne. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as First Voices Indigenous Radio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. I'd like to welcome our first guest, Stephanie Witkowski. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. Executive Director of 7,000 Languages, a, a nonprofit organization that helps Indigenous peoples around the world teach, learn, and sustain their languages through technology. 7,000 Languages creates free online language learning courses in partnership with Indigenous, minority, and refugee communities so they can keep their languages alive. Stephanie has more than 10 years of experience in both language revitalization and the nonprofit sector. She holds an MA in linguistic from the University of Hawaii with Manoa and with an emphasis in language documentation and conservation and has worked with speakers of multiple underdocumented languages, including native languages of California, the Pacific, and Russia. And to find out more about 7,000 languages and to keep along with us, you listeners, you can go visit 7000.org. Stephanie, welcome to First Voices Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here. Um, so thank you so much. The uh, whole idea about endangered languages, mm-hmm. and it's part, probably why you started your organization, 7000 Languages. Can you give us uh, the, the background of it besides what I read in the bio? So, um, we think at 7,000 Languages that it's really important for uh, all speakers of all languages to have their voice heard and to have their language preserved, maintained, and in use. We're really happy that we're able to provide, through generous donations, an online language learning platform so that anybody for free 
we don't charge communities anything, can create an online language course. And so the goal is for any community that is on their language revitalization journey to be able to have access to this resource. Um, because there's 7,000 languages, that's the name of our organization, 7,000 languages. We know that there are about 7,000 languages in the world. And yet I would say there's less than 100 that receive any kind of support through technology, government support, prestige in the community. And so we really hope to, to provide some of that for the other remaining you know, 6,900 languages that are out there. They're oftentimes spoken by just a handful of people and they don't have the support that they need to truly keep their language and their culture thriving. So as you know, language, it's hard to take language away from other aspects of our life. Language holds within it information about culture, information about our world, our environment, the land, health. And so we think it's, it's critical that communities have access to their language, but um, that these languages continue to thrive. I think it's very important to understand it in a way, um, you know, from perspective of Indigenous peoples. In this yeah. context where the accessibility to technology is not there, is it not? It's not. Absolutely not. I mean, there's just not the same support for communities, Indigenous communities of um, the world to, to reclaim their language, to speak the language of their ancestors to their children. There just isn't that support, both from a technology side, but often from a, a more institutional side. Oftentimes, um, governments have historically and still to this day um, have treated speakers of minority languages horrifically, right? Horrifically. And so there just isn't that same support at all. And we hope to combat that. We really hope to change that for these communities. And what, do you, what are the steps that you're taking to combat that besides providing more technology? So we provide uh, technology, of course, that's our number one thing to help support and create hopefully communities of speakers. Our technology includes language courses and oftentimes communities use that to get the language back in schools um, so that children have access to their indigenous or ancestral language in schools because we know that when children have access to their indigenous or ancestral language, they do better in all subjects. They have better mm. health outcomes. So we hope that we are able to support that health outcomes um, for children. We also provide um, hopefully information and advocacy on behalf of Indigenous communities that are interested in reclaiming their language just by getting more information out there about the challenges that communities face and about the importance of revitalizing and maintaining Indigenous languages. This is very important what you're doing, Stephanie. And I, if I could give a story to this and the yeah. times change, of course, uh, when I grew up, there was nothing offered from Indigenous, for Indigenous peoples in mainstream or even private sector schools. And, and the demeanor or the attitude of children such as myself then was you didn't see yourself, you didn't hear about yourself, you didn't read about yourself. You were punished in this case for speaking your language. But as you say now that it's healthier to do this, to, to mm -hmm. speak and bring that forward and the children are healthier for it. But is there the reality, Stephanie, that 
we can actually take this, in this case, Lakota, the, the living language mm -hmm. of Lakota, and really apply it in a system or a language, uh, uh, in this case, where there's many other languages, but mainly English and Espanol, which are two colonial languages. Mm -hmm. And these two languages often, what we say that the, the speakers is that these languages are, are often excluding but yet including when it comes to tokenism, tokenizing mm. native languages. Where where do I go to use it in the commonplace? You know, right. because the cultural background is much different. Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, how do we create this kind of a, a bit of a linguistic term, but domains? How do we create mm. these spaces and these domains of language use so that a language like Lakota, the language you grew up with, is the language of choice, right? It is the prestige language. Um, and I think that's a fantastic question. I think it's one that we're, you know, we're constantly need to ask ourselves. We all do. Oftentimes I think probably language communities themselves who are working on their language revitalization are, are asking this question. How do we speak our language in our homes? How do we speak our language in the schools? How do we get it to our children? Um, how do we keep it alive? But it's also, I think, I think it's a question that we all need to be asking ourselves as well, even those with, mm. with, you know, English being their only language that they know. How do we make space and how do we make room for these indigenous languages? Yeah, I think one thing people need to do is become much more aware of the land they're on. Absolutely. That we're all on occupied land and understanding who the people are that this land has been taken from. If we're on occupied land, who are these people? What is their history and their background? For example, right, I, I live and work in Southern California. I work on the occupied land of the Ahajman and the Tongva people. And they're an unrecognized, federally unrecognized tribe, but they are doing an incredible amount of work to keep their language and their culture alive in their community. And I think it's my responsibility and everybody's responsibility of it to learn more about those communities and to figure out how you can support those communities, even at a local level. What do they need? What resources do they need? How can you lend your voice and your support? I think that's a really fantastic question. I really think very thought provoking, mm -hmm. right? So how do we create these spaces in the world? Do, um, how do we all become part of the solution? To me, it's a, it is about asking these questions. Maybe they haven't been asked before. Maybe there's not room for that. But now it's evident that it's you're ready for this. And this is a question from someone who is also working with languages and is a listener to the radio program. And, and I'm going to go ahead and ask it or their commentary, which is uh, after multiple queries of native languages or native script. None of the indigenous languages of the Western Hemisphere turn up at all mm -hmm. on the internet. Why? So that's a question. The other one is when you look into language stocks and you're, you're a person of studying language, why is it not in older scripts such as we can refer to the biblical references, but it does not recognize the Western Hemisphere in general? So this was the sort of the limited ability of ancient history, and now I'm going to tag on to this, we can mm -hmm. add Aboriginal 100,000-year-old culture compared mm -hmm. to the ones that we standardize 
the ideas from at least 5,000 to 6,000 years ago from the Middle East to, to Europe, now to what is called America. So the question is that why aren't they appearing when even get Google it? There's, there's nothing when it comes to ancient. So we're kind of dismissing it as before we even, you know, prioritize why we have to save our languages, basically. Right. Yeah. No, that's a great, that's a great question. I mean, there's just isn't that visibility at all for these, mm. these communities. And it's really tragic. And I think, too, sometimes almost to a different point, oftentimes when people think about, and I'm, and I'm probably using North America, indigenous languages, they think of some artifact. It's an old language. It's a dead language. And that's not true because Native people are still very much thriving and alive and invested in cultural reclamation and that these languages absolutely can exist in a modern world. Um, because I think there are people who believe these languages cannot exist in a modern world. The technology doesn't work with indigenous languages. Indigenous languages, that's why they die, right? Sometimes there's this, this thought that, well, that's why they died off. They couldn't keep up. People stopped speaking them. Um, but that's not true. First of all, we know that people didn't just stop speaking languages. Their languages were stolen from them. Children were stolen from them sent to boarding schools. You know, you, you spoke about that just a little bit. We know that that's not that far back in our history that children were sent to boarding schools and told, um, you cannot speak your ancestral, your mother tongue. You will be punished. You'll be beat for it. Last year, there was a story um, about boarding schools in Canada and they unearthed thousands of graves of children. The way these children were treated in these boarding schools was horrific. And the only reason I think this story didn't break in America is nobody's gone looking for the graves yet. I think um, absolutely these languages were stolen. Um, it happened through acts of genocide, people trying to save the man and kill the Indian, right? And so I think now sometimes there tends to be this attitude of like, well, the language was lost, it disappeared, um, it's not meant for a modern world. And I, I think that's simply not true. Um, I think that indigenous languages are, like all languages, adaptable and can thrive in our modern world if given the right attention and the right resources. Is that a baby? Yeah. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. <is>. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and of course, you know, um, the other thing we're learning in the pandemic as my, my child is at home <laughs> is how important it is that we can learn online. Um, yeah. We have access to learning resources online. Yes, I have a, I have a 14-month-old. That's, that's, this is perfect, Stephanie. This is perfect. It really <laughs> is. Crying out to, to be heard. Um, <laughs> so um, thank you for that. So I'm thinking since your study of languages, and I often say this once or twice or maybe more, is in 2013, I spent time in Auschwitz and Birkenau. With that was an elder that from Pine Ridge in South Dakota, Virgil Kilstrate. We had a ceremony and, and then we finished at in the end of the day at the, the local retreat center we were staying. And... Mm -hmm. We were there and he looked exhausted. I was exhausted. I'm sitting there and I'm asking him, do we have 
a, an idea? Do we have a concept? Do we have a word for domination? Mm-hmm. Immediately, no. There's no word for domination, no concept for domination. He said, you think about the language is that we need a relational language to get along with all so we can understand all. And that's just not anthropocentric views. And so he was talking about earth itself. Mm-hmm. Do you find that a little different with indigenous languages? And I'm not trying to compare a duality versus the Euro Romance languages, in a sense? I do. I have a great example like that. One of the languages that I worked on for a tribe in Southern California, when they spoke about the land, they did not have a way to express ownership of the land. It was, it was impossible to say a phrase like, my land, your land. It just wasn't how the land was thought of in that language, which is a really great point about the importance, too, of keeping languages alive because they really offer us all a glimpse into another way of knowing, another way of thinking, and another way of understanding what is possible as as humans, as mankind, You know, what is possible in terms of how we think about and consider the world. But um, yeah, I love that example. That was really eye-opening to me. I'm very English-centric. I was like, what do you mean you can't own that? (laughs) You can can say my this, my that. You can say my anything. It was absolutely impossible in that language. And I think that goes to show that language doesn't just hold words. It really contains within it a way of thinking and a way of of having a relationship with the earth and a relationship with the land and how critical that is that we all sort of rethink about that. We think about our relationship with the land. So yeah, I, I have found that as I've worked on um, different indigenous languages and it's always eye-opening. It always just speaks to me about the importance of keeping these languages alive. So we're speaking with Stephanie Witkowski, who's the executive director of 7,000 Languages, and at, you can visit at 7,000.org. And one of the things that I want to ask you, Stephanie, is your 10 years of working with language revitalization. Do you find it often, more than often, that indigenous languages have been standardized in a sense that they've been watered down in order to fit the concepts of the modern language of English, which English is a fairly new language to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe it is overall, but these ancient languages, Mm. you know, which sees everything in perspective in relation, is, is it that standard that we need to translate, interpret into conceptual language where it's really noun laden so much and, and I find it difficult, Stephanie, I find it difficult to try to take a verb motion language that's so alive and sort of <laughs> dull it a little bit to put it in concept. Do you find that often when, when you're studying um, the languages? What a great example of Lakota, right? It's very verb-based, and I, I, it's probably, 
I have at least found that it is a challenge at times for people who want to revitalize and reclaim their language to use the tools that are in existence, to use a dictionary the way dictionaries have been created. Because as you just mentioned, they are very, the way they treat words is very English centric, right? You know, what is a word? What is a word boundary when you have a language that one word can contain so much information? So I, I have found that in working with communities who are uh, revitalizing their language, that the tools that are available don't quite fit. Um, I've also found that when working with communities that are revitalizing their language, the institutions we've created don't quite fit. The language doesn't always fit in a classroom setting, right? With rows of desks and a teacher at the front. And oftentimes, that's not the right way to begin learning this language. But really, for a lot of communities that I've worked with, I, I think they have found that when the language is being used with the land and with practices that are culturally relevant, practices in the land, that's when the language truly thrives. So some examples are a community in the Pacific Northwest talking about fishing practices and canoe building practices and how the language was meant for these practices. And English isn't the right fit. English is, is subpar. It doesn't work right when we're talking about these practices, these traditional practices. But not to say that the language, indigenous languages can't also be brought into the modern world. I think that's critical too. But yeah, there are so many situations where English is not, it's, it doesn't fit right. It doesn't work right. And the indigenous language really um, is much better suited to capture these um, the relationship with the land or um, sort of these traditional practices. And I think that's, that's really wonderful. And I think that we have to understand that not everything needs to be learned in a classroom. Yes. Not everything is that is important for children to learn happens in a classroom mm -hmm. but often it happens outside the classroom and we have to i think really encourage and enable teachers especially native teachers and language teachers yeah. to get outside of these restrictions and get outside of these these very english-centric colonial ways of passing down knowledge one thing that i really find in my time on earth, the experience of hearing story, stories without having to read it. Yeah. As a child, having to read a book in script meant something totally different than sitting in front of fire, listening to an elder tell the mm -hmm. same story. The energy yeah. was totally different. I think that's in all of us where we educate the wisdom out of ourselves. And, that's a great and point. It's about memory and, and whatever, but when the older people are telling us their experience, it ignites that fire within us, that wisdom as a child even. I, that's what I think. And when I heard your child crying in the background or making his point in back or her point in the background, yeah. that's what it's about. His That story is needed, needed to be told. Yeah. yeah, it's about connection, right? It's about connection. And I love that. Yes. And the tradition of storytelling and you know, you can hear the same story. I think 
I think too, sometimes we get stuck that, well, there's only one, there's, there's the story and this is the one way to tell it. And I think oftentimes when I've worked on um, indigenous languages, I found this tradition of, well, you can tell the same story 20 times and it'll be different every time until it becomes your story. And then you'll tell it 20 times and you'll tell it differently 20 times because it's not about the story itself. It's about the event. It's about the storytelling experience. It's about the time, the place, and who is around and what you need to pull out of the story in that moment. Mm. Um, That one story can contain so much wisdom and so much knowledge and, and so many lessons and thoughts. It's not about the words necessarily, right? It's about that event and those people coming together. And it's really more about connection. No, thank you for that. I want to understand it in a way that when you studied in the University of Hawaii, that Mm -hmm. uh, the experience that you had with revitalization and, you know, Mm -hmm. the nonprofit sector, and you're offering this for free, your background, it's uh, Witkowski. And I do know as much as anything that when I went to Poland, if that's where it's from, yeah. is when they there were indigenous buffalo, the bison were still there. And so that made me think about, oh, there, from the times that I looked into it, which was 10, 15 years ago, there still remains indigenous languages in Europe. Is yeah. that true? That is true. Yes, absolutely. All over the world, all over the world, there are these languages that are... Um, very much under-resourced minority languages, but they're still thriving and those communities are still thriving. So as as much as we know that language loss is a tragic story, there's so much hope. I see so much hope when I work with communities that are engaged with language revitalization. They have dreams of their children speaking their language. You know, they have dreams of sharing the stories that their elders told them with their children. And I think for me, it's incredibly humbling I feel incredibly grateful to be able to be a part of that with the communities that we work with as they embark on their language revitalization journey. We're very thankful that we get to, you know, provide this tool for free. This is a good thing. And maybe we should uh, talk in the future because it seems this is the way in my experience on the radio is that people are wanting to know their rootedness in a sense. And that goes back to the original languages indigenous or even if it started somewhere in Greece, you know, right. with the Greek language. It's to, under, to understand the etymology of their culture is to understand the etymology of language. And and we misinterpreted a lot, I think. Uh, but that's only my thoughts because my is experience with trying to visualize the ideas that well, in Lakota, we have inclusion, so that's why everybody in America is here. But now we have English, but we're, we are put on small reservations. We are excluded from the whole. To change that analogy into something something that has potential, where the rootedness to the rooted languages come to life again. And I think that's what you're doing with, with 7000.org. I think so. I, I think we see ourselves as, as one piece of the, the journey for many communities. And it's it's truly our goal to, to just provide resource and provide tools. Um, these communities that are engaged in language revitalization are doing such important work 
difficult work at times, very challenging work, but such important work for the future of their community, the future of their family and their children. Um, and, and for right now, too, for all the connection and all of the learning that's happening right now, too. Really grateful to be part of it. And we look forward to working with more communities. So, you know, if any of your listeners um, are interested in reclaiming and revitalizing their Indigenous language, they want to learn how, you know, we would certainly invite them to come over to 7000.org, um, learn about our programs. We're eager to work with your listeners as they are embarking on their language revitalization journey. We uh, hope that we can provide services to them. And as I said, it's completely for free. So we're, we're really proud that we can offer that, that tool well, for free. Thank you for joining us, Stephanie Witkowski, who is the executive director of 7,000 Languages. It's just a nonprofit that helps Indigenous around the world. And that's what this program is about, the Indigenous peoples from around the world and not so pigeonholed in a Native American context. So I thank you again for your advocacy work and the languages that you're you're revitalizing and as you say, you know, to to put everybody in touch through technology, but yet understanding where that community of the languages come from, that land, land back, language back. I love it. Language yeah. back. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Take care, Stephanie. And take care of your little one. Awesome. Oh, I will. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, we aren't sick, okay? Me da shapi ki kitwak. Anishinabe. Manitoga bagitinawan. Chibayak. Chibinishtawat. Chibikinamagewat. Chibijinchkawat. Anishinabe. Bigodash Anishinabe gewin. Chideboetang aning gewin ejiminiko is it? Chianamiat. Chinimit. Chabajitut Paganya Miesha Ke Zonganinik Wajajakya Abajituk away Nagamonan Eje Namiaik Eje Nimiek Kichimi Wetch And there you go. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasin Ghost Horse. Now I'd like to welcome you to our second half guests, Luella Brin. Welcome to First Voices Radio, Luella Brin. Thank you for joining us. Thank um, you for having me. Four Points is a dream of Luella Brin, an Absaloga journalist with nearly 20 years experience in the news industry and has over the last decade envisioned a media company that produces the highest quality investigative and public service journalism. Four Points Media Incorporated is the embodiment of that vision. And Luella is a descendant of powerful healers, educators, and leaders, and most importantly, storytellers. And she has a degree in journalism from the University of Montana, 
a 2002 graduate of the Freedom Forum's American Indian Journalism Institute and a 2004 Chips Quinn Scholar. And Luella has three children and lives on a Crow Indian reservation in southeastern Montana. And Luella, I want to start out with this. The most important of all is storyteller. I'm sure that's leading you into why you became a journalist. Yes, absolutely. One of the most important things that uh, that we as natives do is keep our history and tell tell our stories. And as much as healing and leading and and teaching is important, those stories are all integral in those roles. And so, as a storyteller, I feel like my role is paramount to the propagation and and the moving forward of culture and history. And when I read your your article about why isn't there more news about Native people, especially in mainstream or otherwise. Could you go into what Four Points Media is? Four Points Media is a nonprofit news organization, and there's there's actually four prongs to it. We're in phase one, which is the news phase. And I say we, it's just me at this point, but what we're going to do in this news phase is establish a presence on the Crow Indian Reservation to cover local news. And when I say representation matters, I mean the representation of American Indians in the news media matters. I am raising three kids on the reservation. I have two that are college age. One has started college, the other one is taking a year off. And as I'm raising these boys and my daughter, I. I was seeing nothing but statistics for crime and and murder and suicide and essentially dead Indians in the news. And on the other end of the spectrum, it was dancing Indians at powwows. And so that that's all we had. And that that's all my kids were seeing. And yet at home, I was telling them, you can be anything you want to be. If you work hard enough, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish whatever you want to accomplish. And yet... The media is telling them you're a dead Indian or you're a dancing Indian. And if I'm not going to be part of the solution that changes that representation in the media, then I'm allowing the problem to continue. And as a journalist, I'm in a position where I can make a change in that representation. It took me a long time to get to the point where I felt confident and comfortable enough to make my own way into the landscape of media and of news to be able to do this and go out there and say, hey, you know what? I'm credible. I'm talented enough and I'm I'm qualified to start this organization and produce credible news for my community. And hopefully there's people out there reading this, realizing that, yeah, we're more than dead Indians. We're more than dancing Indians. You know, we have community events, we have features, we have sports, we have more than what we're seeing in these mainstream outlets. This is a good point that you have. The affirmation that we're still here for our people, Native people in North America, but worldwide, this is the older cultures that we're talking about. And to misrepresent that culture in any flux, but as you described, this this too much Native news or not enough Native news, but the fact that we are still here. I have I have a 10-year plan and we're not going to stay 
just local. You know, we're going to we're going to go regional. I want to eventually go national over the next decade. Uh, what what I want to do with this organization is not sticking solely with news, but to become an authentic voice for Native people through our podcast network, through mm -hmm. book publishing and through the development of documentary film. Yeah, there's four prongs to four points. And even the name four points is significant. I, I like to joke around that Indians love the number four. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a formidable, uh, formidable number. It's a formative number. And for the Crow people, for the Absaloga people, it's a sacred number. And the, the four points are the four lodge poles of the Absaloga people represent our home, our lodge, and our lodge is our mother and our mother is our protector. Our, our mother forges who we are in our identity and in our clan and in our family and four points media can be a reflection an authentic reflection of who native people are then it will have met its mission the reason why you made the move to bring the four points out more in this 10-year plan was because you were working for the bighorn county news could you tell me that situation well, in working for the Bighorn County News, when I first got hired, it was a extremely hopeful and wonderful situation. The publisher that I was working for was extremely open-minded. And I mean, I was hired in, in a 10-minute interview and he had so many great plans for expanded coverage of Indian country in, in our county area. The majority of Bighorn County is the Crow Indian Reservation and parts of Northern Cheyenne Reservation. We had big plans. We were going to change the face of the paper. We were going to change the coverage of the paper. And within three months, he had a heart attack and he died. That changed everything. It got to the point where there was so much pushback from the owner and my direct supervisor who didn't even live in the community that we were covering too much native news. We were covering too much reservation news. We weren't covering enough of the um, county seat, which is Hardin, which is a non-native town. And that really just translated to where we were covering too many brown people and not enough white people. In the midst of COVID, when there's no community events, how are we supposed to cover a town with no community events? And meetings that aren't really happening publicly because people aren't quite figuring out how to have public meetings yet at the start of the pandemic. It became a, a toxic working relationship after about two and a half years of me being in the lead position at that paper to a point where I had my entire staff infected with COVID, working from home, some days even bedridden, and they were still complaining about our coverage. Not even taking into consideration our health and well-being at that point. You mentioned they did not live in the community, and yet it's, it's different than a neighborhood. We know all about the neighborhood. We know about the United States. We know... America at large, basically, because we participate in and sometimes we have to live within it. 
And yet it's just the opposite. They do not see what happens within our community, like you say, on a Crow Reservation or on a Cheyenne, Cheyenne Reservation in, in Montana. And when you wanted to bring it out to increase that native coverage, what does it mean when you have to read out, reach out? And let's look at a 10-year plan. If, where do you see it in 10 years where maybe it's more than just an organization and a newspaper that it actually has all the technical abilities to reach out, in this case, to the world? In 10 years, Four Points will have the website will be fully operational. We'll have the podcast network. We'll have several podcasts on there, fully sponsored uh, with with not only just local voices, but national and international voices on the podcast network. We will have published several books, academic papers. I have no doubt that we will have at least one academic journal of Native research. And we will be most likely working on our first short documentary in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Your, your space that you're saying is basically underreported communities is that and you said native people but now we are into the new year what is anything changed your perspective because of covid of of course not are you anticipating that someday covid will go away are you still working within this hopefulness of you know we our, our acceptance that covid is here to stay and how do we do that covid is here to stay other pandemics are coming i have no doubt that this virus is going to turn into another type of virus that will turn into another type of virus. I mean, that's the nature of, of epidemiology. Uh, we manage through SARS. We manage through the Spanish flu. I worked through COVID the entire time. Every journalist I know worked through COVID the entire time. We all had to mask up. We all had to put on our face shields. We all had to work through Zoom. We, we interviewed people through Zoom. We went on the scene and maintained a six-foot distance for uh, articles that we had to do where we had to be on scene. These things can be done, and they can be done safely. Reporters, journalists, videographers, all of, all of those media um, journalism careers those are essential careers the the news is not an optional career in in my eyes in in the same way that teachers professors um daycare workers anyone else who had to work through the pandemic is essential we're we're essential as well we made it work and we're gonna have to continue to make it work and you think about what you said earlier about the feathered Indians and dancing in Indian powwows and everything in between, whether it's a misrepresentation or representation in its right context, is also, as you call it, a hyper local news. And that's dying, and local news is dying, basically, you said. But you don't see it as necessarily dying. Is that because of the lack of newsprint versus digital news? What I'm seeing in um, my kind of doomed career as a journalist, um, (laughs) I worked for the largest paper in the state for two years. And when they had to make cuts, they cut the most hyper-local section first, which made no sense to me because there was no other alternative to cut 
are there there was no other alternative for those communities to access their news when when we're looking at big news corporations coming in and buying up local papers rather than keeping local coverage what they're doing is just expanding national coverage which to me makes no sense because there are so many options already for national coverage, but there's very little options for local coverage. So it's it's like it's like a glut, a news glut of the same stories over and over and over and over. It's like going to a it's like going to a blockbuster and only getting to rent copies of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and there's no other movie there. Like that's that's how I imagine these big corporations coming in is they're they're only offering me one thing. And that's why these papers are closing down because why would I pay, you know, my for my regional papers up to two dollars and is so thin. Why would I pay two dollars for a extremely thin newspaper for news I can read online on the AP because that's all it is. When I can go and read my local news somewhere else, if somebody else is offering that. And that's the alternative I am trying to provide is the local news that matters to the community living here. This is the case in point is is that Native people, we are, what, two, three million, four million of the total population in the United States. And... We love to hear about each other, but our communities are so far apart in the indigenous communities. Um, but yet we still don't hear about our communities, our peoples in the mainstream news, unless it's through, you know, National Geographic, where the misrepresentation continues. But even our own people are misre misrepresenting our, our true who we are as Native peoples. Do you find that maybe the discrepancy between or the gap between why it's not so so important to uh, Americans at large? I think that most Americans still believe that we are a lost, missing people in a sense that we're we're part of history. We're not we're not a living people. Uh, I was listening to a podcast a couple days ago and the podcaster had interviewed her friends about you know what they learned about. Native American history or American Indian history in class uh, as grade schoolers. And they only one thing they learned was the Trail of Tears. And it was an extremely watered down version of the Trail of Tears. And they learned nothing else, even through college. That is the vast majority of this nation. They all have that shared experience of maybe learning one or two things a watered down version of the Trail of Tears or a watered down version of the Thanksgiving story, or maybe they watched Squanto in grade school or something. And we only exist in the past. How can we expect them to have any interest in what's going on in Indian country today if they don't even realize that we exist in the present? And that's why it's so important for news outlets like this to to get news, important news, easily accessible out into the world. And that's the reason I chose to go online 
and have a lot of my news free is so that people have that easy access. I, I do have some of it is behind a paywall, but most of the news is free because I, I think it's really, really important for people to have access. That access is part of what I believe is, is a right for people to be informed. People have a right to be informed about their community and not only their local community, but as a country, we are a community. And even though we don't feel like a, a, a cohesive community, as a country, we should be trying to understand the different pockets of population. If I can provide information or an experience for someone who stumbles upon the website or someone who's actively searching for, for native news and they read something on my website and it spurs their imagination or it spurs their, their desire to research more than, you know, I have done something to help someone at least want to learn more about natives in the present day. Tell us, how do we support you? Where do we go to find out any facts that we may want to bring this, your team, you team, your I team right now to bring it out to many other people who want to help. And so this is why I'm asking you to share your accessibility. The best way to help is to go to the website, fourpointspress.com. And it's all spelled out, F-O-U-R-Press.com. Uh, you know, it's always important for us to have traffic on the website. And anything that you read on there is as up to the minute as we can get. When it comes to local news, we have the podcast network right now has two podcasts, which are actually both me. And we have another podcast getting ready to join the network and another one in the work. So mm -hmm. the podcast network is growing and supporting the podcast by, just by listening is so important because as we gain more listeners, we have more access to different features within the podcast. If you read the About Me page on the website, it gives you all the information and the history of how we kind of came to be as an organization. And it gives you... Um, the links to email. If anyone has questions for me about, you know, what we're doing, what we want to do, history, uh, what our plans are for the future, all of that is on the about about us page. So that's the first step to support Four Points Media is just visit our website, fourpointspress.com. Thank you for joining us, Luella Bryn. It's needed, and this new generation of journalists, such as yourself, need to change. Uh, adapt as as a culture and cultures that we have as native people because we've always been here we'll always be here we're adaptable and so thank you for being here on first voices radio thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it and i had a lot of fun visiting with you luella bryn here on first voices radio and again go to that website it's fourpointspress.com On Tuesday, January 11th, we lost another friend of First Voices Radio, Vince Fontaine, who was 62 at the time of his sudden death of a heart attack, was a celebrated Juno Award-winning Ojibwe musician from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Just to note that the Juno Awards honors Canadian music achievements and the equivalent would be the Grammy Award in the U.S. A major force in the Canadian music industry for more than three decades, 
Vince was a founder of the bands Eagle and Hawk and Indian City. Eagle and Hawk toured the world and performed at notable events such as the Olympics and New Orleans Jazz Fest, not once but twice. Vince and his bands also had many fans in the U.S., and his Indian City band performed twice at the Smithsonian's National Museum, the American Indian, in both New York City and Washington, D.C. And I admired Vince because everything he stood for revolved around his respect for Mother Earth and the seven sacred teachings of his people. Honesty, love, courage, truth, wisdom, humility, and respect. Vince appeared on First Voices Radio last July talking about the discovery of the 215 unmarked graves of Indigenous students at the Kamloops Residential School in British Columbia. Quite often, the songs that Vince wrote put a spotlight on critical issues in the Indigenous world, including residential or boarding schools and standing together on the path toward reconciliation. Vince was known for his strong work ethic and was a mentor and inspiration to many young Indigenous musicians, not only in Canada, but also here in the U.S. It has been said that Vince never refused to help Indigenous peoples. Star People, a track from Indian City's fourth album, Code Red, released in November 2021, fits this tribute to Vince Fontaine. This is Vince talking about the song, which features lead vocals by Vince's longtime friend Jim Cuddy of Canadian band Blue Rodeo fame. And it's not directly about the creation story. It's about us as a people and how we journey on. And this is, today we're in the now, which is in the physical realm. But uh, yesterday or beyond, we were in a different place. And and tomorrow and beyond, we'll be in a different place. In a sense, that's what the journey of star people is in my mind. I have to uh, think about the lyrics. It's simple. It's just, uh, you know, let's look beyond. Let's travel to where we are let's uh, take me to the stars and find out who we are is one of the lyrics it just talks about who we are as as a people and uh, what does that mean and we can never go too far there's another dimension and realm uh, beyond the physical and this is where i think uh, the star people story um, is part of we're on the road we're leaving now gonna find the place they call tomorrow tomorrow it's the place we've dreamed about If we go, there ain't no doubt They'll follow, they'll follow Suddenly we've come this far I realize there's so much more to this life This life And I believe in you And if you believe in me We're there by daylight Take me to the stars We can never go too far Too far Take me to the stars Let's find out who we are Who we are I wrote a song with you in mind We can pass the past with you in mind For right now dream of you and I seven sacred teachings show us why and show us how show us how hear the voice of mother earth she's asking what she's really worth she's crying take me to the stars 
Until we meet in the stars, Vince Fontaine. And this is First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasin Ghost Horse. Please visit patreon.com slash ghost horse and join me at akantuinstitute.org. <laughs>